0: And turn with me, please, or listen on as I read Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 22. So we look at Saul's conversion under three sermons. And then from there, we will look at Cornelius. So now the second uh, sermon text on this conversion of Saul, the persecutor, Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more. In strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And let us pray together. Holy Father, we thank you once more that Jesus is the Christ. We thank you that you showed it to Saul. Though he fought it, he kicked against the goads. You overcame his stubborn will. So you have us. And we thank you that even today you're still showing us that. And you're showing us the wonder of your grace in a sinner's life. Help us to see it once again. And the place of the church in it all. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've been saying, we find ourselves in, the, in a, the midst of a series of conversions. Four conversions, we could say. There is Simon's conversion. There is the Ethiopians. There is Saul's. And then there is Cornelius. Now, you might say something was wrong with what I just said. And I'll acknowledge that in a moment. But let's just say there were four conversions that Luke Pointed out to us, and here I would uh, note again, in light of that overall thrust of chapters um, chapters eight through ten, where is it? Chapters seven through ten. It's chapters eight through ten. Chapters eight through ten for conversion. The 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 overall impression that it is meant to have upon us, beginning with here's where something was wrong: the false conversion of Simon. Uh, More and more, I I, I am uh, realizing, and I hope you realize, that there is great importance in the fact that Luke places that first. Now, it did happen first in uh, in the history, but he chose to highlight it as well in the narrative in order to give us uh, a distinct impression, in order to contrast the true with the false. Do we notice the essential difference between Simon and these other three? I'll tell you what it isn't. It's not that one professed faith and was baptized and the others were not. That is true of all four of them. All four were baptized. All four professed faith. All four came into the church. All four share these features in common. The difference, the essential difference is that while all four enjoyed the outward, only three of the four enjoyed the inward. And that is the real point of this series of four conversions, one which was false. It's that the outward alone is not enough. Luke is making so much of the church in her outward ordinances of preaching and baptism and church membership. And yet he wants us to see, again, that the outward is not enough. You can be baptized. You can profess faith. You can join the church. And still it can be said of you, as Peter said to Simon, I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And sadly, sometimes the church does have to say these things by way of discipline. What really matters is I've been stressing and as I was stressing in Titus chapter three, and as Jesus was stressing to Nicodemus, who thought all was well because he was born a Jew is that we are born again. You are born. Uh, let us say to Christian parents. Something like that in the case of Nicodemus. That isn't enough Jesus says. You have to be born again. If you would enter the kingdom of God. You have to be washed. You have to be renewed with the Holy Spirit. In other words. You've got to experience this inward change. This inward lasting change. The new birth. The new creation in Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. And ideally the church is full of such people. It is that which gives us a place in the church. Listen to what Jesus says to Paul in the way Paul, and we'll come back to this, the way Paul recounts it in Acts chapter 26. I think this captures the point very well. He says, in commissioning Saul... Beginning in verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from power uh, of Satan to God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There Jesus is stressing to Saul, who soon would be called Paul, the inward blessings of salvation. But having stressed this point, let us see how this man, Saul, having been soundly converted, came into the church. And what I want to do here is to look at both sides of this. First, the church receives Saul and then uh, and then second, Saul joins the church. So first look at the church receiving Saul. Do we appreciate the scandal of this, that this man, Saul? had joined the church or rather uh, from the standpoint of the church that she had received him how difficult it was for these disciples to do that and yet i would also say how clarifying as we look at the book of acts we are not just looking at the progress of salvation in the soul we are i want to stress that repeatedly but we are also looking at the progress of salvation uh, in history and in the church, the community of believers that Jesus was building from heaven and and the place that Saul was given in the church is clarifying. It's clarifying to us. It's cl- It was clarifying to him. Now, the church here, as we look at this first point uh, uh, from the vantage point of, of the church, the church was represented in one man, Ananias. And it was he who was called to deal with this man, Saul, and to welcome him in the church, as scandalous and as uh, unbelievable as that was. Ananias. Who was he? Well, in truth, we don't know much about him. There's very little that we could say, though I think it is possible, perhaps, that we make too little of him. That's one of the things I, I think that I realized this week. Ananias played a very important part in the early church, and the Lord honors him by this testimony. We read that he was a disciple in Damascus. Now, he wasn't someone that was there as a result of the Jerusalem uh, purge. He was already a disciple who was there, which we might wonder at in itself, though we don't have time to dwell upon that thought. But he was more, and this is really the important point, about Ananias. Ananias was a prophet. Uh, Now, I'm not sure I ever thought to put it like that, but it really is obvious once you begin to think of it. Ananias was someone to whom the Lord spoke directly. He had a vision from the Lord. He had a word from the Lord. The Lord uh, commissioned and commanded him to go and to speak to, Thaw, to Saul. Now, uh, that meant that he, in a sense, like Saul, had a measure of authority from heaven. I even found one, apo- uh, one uh, commentator wondering, did that make him an apostle in the lower A case? Uh, I don't know, and neither did he. We can't be sure. At the very least, we see this measure of authority uh, from the Lord. Which gives not only Saul authority in the church, but Ananias. And it explains his place in the narrative. He was indeed an important figure in the early church. Well, as I say, this uh, the, the church represented in an Ananias welcoming Saul. is clarifying in what way. The first lesson that we can learn has to do with evangelism. Now, I'm not suggesting that Ananias evangelized Saul, but I'm still saying that in terms of the church's expansion, that this incident is clarifying from that standpoint. And the point that I would make is this, that only evangelism, the only evangelism that works is that which brings people into the church. That's what we see here. The goal of evangelism should always be conversion, but following this entrance into the church and That is where the evangelism, the so-called evangelism of today, falls far, far short of the biblical evangelism of the early church. The Christianity of the early church knew nothing of the kind of evangelism so popular today, which tells people the gospel and then leaves them there. This is an observation uh, a former elder in our church made, Dave Stevens. I told him I would be quoting him in the sermon uh, tonight. He said, it's, it's easy to talk to people about the gospel. In fact, uh, they'll, they'll indulge you. They enjoy it. But when you invite them to church, they'll hardly ever come. Well, until you've invited them to church and until they've actually come to church and entered the church, the evangelism has done nothing. You see, the idea of evangelism, which just stops short at giving someone a gospel tract or telling someone of Jesus. I'm not saying these things have no value. But it misses the grand scheme and concept that is presented in the church uh, of the apostles until the people we evangelize come into the church through baptism. And until the church receives them. As disciples, there has been no evangelism at all. At least not in the sense of producing. Legitimate outcomes. But another lesson that we could learn about evangelism is that true evangelism, only God can make a convert. The work of conversion is a sovereign work of God in the heart of a sinner. Man cannot do it. The preaching of men only excited animosity in the heart of Saul. Only God could change him. Only the voice of Jesus had the power and the authority to convert this sinner to himself. And that also is how we should think about evangelism, not only as its goal being bringing people into the church, but also in terms of how that goal is achieved. True results, which is what conversion is, do not depend on us. We cannot produce them. There is no mechanism. There is no scheme that is effective from the standpoint of man. The only scheme that's effective is God at work in the soul. Not even the apostles themselves could produce converts. Only God can make someone a Christian. Only God can turn a God-hater into a God-lover. Now, how does he do it? How does God work in the soul of man? Well, he does so admittedly. And I don't mean to belittle this in the, light, in, the in the slightest. He does so through the efforts of men, ordinarily. And we even see that in Saul's case. Even though Jesus uh, immediately speaks to the soul of Saul and gives him a vision of his own glory... Even following that, as the episode unfolds, he uses Ananias to help him. And so we see even in Saul's case, he uses man. But the results, I'm saying, depend upon God entirely. The results of evangelism do not depend upon man. They depend upon God solely. Only God can make true Christians. But having done so, we see that God deals sovereignly with the soul in conversion he speaks authoritatively to the soul. He makes men's, men Christians, but in doing so, he equally speaks to the church. You see, he's speaking to men, he's saving men, so he's speaking to the church. That's the picture here. And that's the value of seeing this interplay between Saul and Ananias, this new convert, and the church. In speaking to the church, he speaks with the same authority. He has a message for Saul, the new convert, but he also, you notice, has a message For the church, Ananias, he's speaking to both. And so it's his authority that matters in all of this. And the question we have then is, what is he saying to the church? And that's the second point of the second lesson with respect to uh, the church. And that is, he says to Ananias, arise and go. We notice he's reluctant, but the Lord does not accept his refusals. I mean, Ananias. In other words, the lesson here is that there must be An openness to the kinds of people that the Lord will save. That's one of the surprising. That's one of the amazing. And even I would say the heartwarming things that we see in the early chapters of the early church in Acts. Again, we notice it's not for us to say we don't get to decide who's in the church. We don't get to decide the kinds of people who will be in the church in the years to come. We recognize once more that salvation is the Lord's work and his message to the church is a rise and go. Receive them as from me. In a sense you realize. That there is an element of risk. In what the Lord is calling Ananias here to do. And what he may be calling us to do. We don't know. I'm not saying that there will be danger. But there may be. And is the church open to the possibilities? You see Ananias wasn't sure. But he was willing. He was willing to assume the risk. What if Saul it turned out did kill him? we must realize that his reluctance is more or less inevitable. That is inevitable not only in his case, but in our own. Whenever the church is really facing the possibilities that the Lord puts before her. I am aware, uh, as an example, that at times such risks have cost disciples their lives. Not Ananias, but I can think of an instance in Turkey where uh, missionaries were evangelizing Muslims. And they went into their home, even as Ananias did here. And the Muslims had tricked them, and they they bound them, and they killed them. I'm saying that there is an element of risk that Christians must be willing to embrace. Because it is a matter of sheer obedience to the Lord. The Lord was not necessarily promising Ananias safety here, nor is he promising us safety. We are disciples called To carry our cross. What he was calling him to. And what he's calling us to. Is obedience plain and simple. And by the way we'll see in a moment. That's precisely what he was calling Saul to. I'll show him how many things he must suffer for me. It's going to be painful. It's going to be costly. It will cost him many tears. Much blood. I am calling him to obedience. Why Jesus says. Because I have the authority. I rule the church. I'm building the church. The question that confronts the church is. Will we receive and embrace his brothers, those whom he sends to us? Surely we realize that he isn't finished building his church. And there may be surprising eventualities. You know, the world is in so much sin and so much darkness. Do you think that the Lord is done saving sinners? Do you think that it is possible, perhaps, that he might take a notorious uh, sinner Living the kind of life that we couldn't even utter now. That he might take such a person, save him and bring him into this church. Are you open to that? That's the kind of thing that the Lord was saying to Ananias here. Ananias is saying, Lord, I'm not so sure. And he says, this is what I'm calling you to do. And because he was a true disciple and a true prophet, he obeyed. No, the Lord isn't finished building his church. We should look uh, with the anticipation at the kinds of converts we might find In the days to come. But then. The question uh, becomes. How are we to welcome such people. The unlikely converts. The kinds of people that make us nervous. The notorious sinners. The scandalous ones. And there are four things. That we see. That Ananias does. For Saul. The first thing. Is he speaks to him. He's, He's got something to say to him. Which tells us, and this is a point of universal application, that the church always has a message for new people. Our interest is in sharing with them the message of Christianity. Our interest is in telling them, you know, if you're going to be a disciple along with us, it's going to be costly. You've got to count the cost. Jesus is making a claim on your life. Do you realize that? You see, he didn't make it easy. And from our our understanding of the early church, they never did. If anything, it seemed they made it difficult recognizing the challenges of discipleship. They had a word for the new people. Number 2, we see the value of intimacy. He goes to this man, he says, "Brother Saul," imagine that. "Brother Saul." The words must have been difficult to utter, and yet Jesus Jesus had convinced them. This indeed was one of his and he was able now not only to call him a brother who had just uh, days before been the archenemy of the church and he places his hand on him or let us assume he may have even hugged him. He embraced him brother Saul. That's the kind of welcome you see the value of intimacy. What do we learn here? He calls him a brother. He touches him. What's he doing? He's saying the church is a family and now you have a part in it, a rightful part. There is a warmth that you find in a family. We don't call each other brother at least I hope we don't call each other brother because it's convention. Or sister, we do so because there is a real feeling of love that binds the heart of a Christian to another that now existed in the heart of Ananias and the heart of Saul. That was the work, the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of these two sinners. And in binding them together, he was building the church. That's the picture we have. And again, I just want to keep stressing, he's still doing it. Let us not sell him short in that regard. There are many sinners yet unconverted to whom our hearts will be bound as brothers. The third thing we see in the welcoming of, Anna, of, of, of Saul by Ananias is that he was baptized he, uh, and, and, and he re- received the filling of the Holy Spirit. Well, what would I say about that? Notice he doesn't say baptized with the Holy Spirit. He says he was filled with the Spirit having been baptized. Well, the picture here is that in welcoming new converts into the church and her fellowship, that the church confirms and it extends the work already begun in the soul in conversion through baptism, through the filling of the Spirit. How many Christians find, as indeed Saul here found, that whatever, uh, whatever, he had found in conversion was now greatly increased. The work of grace in the soul was sped on uh, with with uh, with greater speed. The oil of conversion is poured out in greater measure. You see, I don't I don't see something fundamentally new happening here. He's been baptized in the spirit now in his conversion. Now in baptism that is sealed and in the subsequent filling of the spirit The work is carried on. It's advanced in the soul. But do you notice how it is advanced in the soul? It's advanced in the soul by coming into the church. This speaks to us of the importance of the church and the means of grace like baptism, like Christian fellowship and preaching and so on. It is through these means that God carries on the work that he begins in conversion in greater measure. This was Saul's experience. It is the experience of those who are like him. But finally, there is, we read in verse 19, an abiding, ongoing fellowship. Not only is he warmly received in the church, but this fellowship continued. Verse 19, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. and Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. I always realize that never a word of God's word is wasted. There is value in every word. They, Luke isn't just filling the time when he says that. He's giving us a happy picture. Again, amazing to think that this man now was enjoying fellowship with Christians. That's the picture. An ongoing, abiding fellowship. What am I saying? I'm saying that the family likes to be together. The family looks forward to being together. The family goes out of its way to be together. Again, this isn't a formality. Nobody's forcing you to be together. The church is, as Machen like to say, a voluntary association. And yet it's amazing to see the kind of fellowship that the Spirit is creating. You remember how often Luke says, with one accord. He's describing true Christian unity, true fellowship that the Lord is creating. He's describing a true love for one another, a true concern, the communion of the saints, as our confession describes it, as the genuine work of the Spirit. Look at the other side. From the standpoint of Saul, he joins the church what can we say about that? Well, the first thing, very simply, is how much the Lord humbled him. That is evident immediately. Paul, uh, who had so much to say, now was, uh, now was prepared to listen. He was forced by circumstances to listen. Now, you see, it's the Lord speaking. It's Ananias speaking, not Saul. And the next most obvious point is what a drastic change in course he now took. He went to the same place, but now for a different reason. Instead of going to Damascus to the Christians, now that was his original charter, but instead of going there to round them up and throw them in prison or bring them back to Jerusalem and throw them into prison, he joined their ranks. And again, I just wonder, uh, has, has there ever been in the history of the church a more glorious conversion than that, a more glorious reversal? There are many, many, you can read of Luther and many others, but... This this really is to me and to many others, the most wonderful changes that the Lord has ever wrought in the heart of a single sinner. He goes to kill them. He joins them, and as I'll later say, he's killed along with them. How clear it is that only God himself could have produced this change. It was almost impossible to believe even among these Christian people. But in this, he must have become aware both through the words of Ananias himself, as well as from the Lord's own calling of him, which we uh, have already seen in chapter 26. Of what the Lord told Ananias, here's what he told Ananias and he told Saul something very similar. Go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So he's a chosen vessel of mine. You remember what he says in Galatians chapter chapter one. It pleased God speaking of his calling. Remember, his calling as a Christian was also his calling as an apostle. His conversion was his call into the ministry. And what did he reflect about that? He reflected upon the call of God. The election of God, it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, there's something else I want to say about those verses in a moment, but just see here that Saul was a chosen vessel. It's also interesting just to notice that word vessel. Didn't we consider that this morning? Here was we might have thought a vessel fitted for destruction, but he was, in fact, in the Lord's Eternal decree, a vessel chosen for great usefulness in the kingdom of God. What was it that accounted for this man's place among the apostles? Solely this. He's a chosen vessel of mine, he says. And he was chosen for this purpose, he says, to Ananias and also to Saul himself. To bear my name. He was to preach Jesus Christ before Gentiles, the apostles of the Gentiles. He was to do so before kings. Happily, we'll see that occurring Later in Acts, even as we saw John the Baptist and Jesus doing in the Gospels, and as well to the children of Israel. Yes, he'd have something to say to them and about them in all of his ministry, the Jews. But he was also to suffer many things. Here was Paul's commission from the Lord. I've chosen you not only to preach but to suffer. Again, he was the instrument, so he thought in his own mind, of bringing suffering to the church. But immediately now it was becoming clear in his calling that the Lord was calling him To suffer at the very hands he was seeking to bring others to suffer by. Amazing to see this reversal. And the Lord wastes no time in making this clear to him. Do we see that the real essence of his calling was the same as that of Ananias? He speaks to the new convert. He speaks to the apostle. He speaks to the church. And it is always the same message. It is that of obedience, plain and simple. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone uh, to whom Jesus says, follow me, pick up your cross and go with me all the way to the end. And he says, as Saul said to our Lord, yes, Lord, what do you want me to do? Whatever it is you're calling me to do, that's what I'll do. And the first thing that he does is to join the church. He's been made aware of what he's called to. But before he takes up that work, he calls the he joins the church. He no more reluctant than they. We think of their reluctance, well his as well, to some extent. And yet, and yet he's willing to do what he was unwilling before to do. They were unsure of him and he was of them at first, but here the two are brought together. Not just they brought to him, yes, Ananias arise and go, but he to them. He's filled with the Spirit. He's baptized. His eyes are opened, which is an enacted parable of his conversion. It's a seal of God's work in saving him. He's opened my eyes. I was blind and now I could see. Did you ever think of Saul when you read and sung Newton's words in amazing grace? Again, we see him spending time with these people. Now, what do we make just as an aside of the fact that in Galatians 1, I read up to this point, but he says the Lord revealed himself to me and then... I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Well, the sense here is that uh, you could say from Galatians one that he was converted and then off he went. But I think a fairer picture is that he was converted. He spent a few days among them and he did a little preaching and then off he went. And then he returned again to Damascus, something like that, though we can't say for sure. But the point is, in joining the church, what was clear to Saul and what was clear to the church and what certainly is clear to us is that he's a Christian now. And we're so used to speaking of him that way. But we really should wonder and marvel every time we speak of this man, Saul, as a Christian now and to see him. Well, to see him among the Christians in Damascus, just as soon as God made him one, that's what he was, a Christian Having been born again like the Ethiopian, he said, in essence, what's to prevent me now from having a place among the church? And the answer is nothing. But we also see that his place was more than a disciple. He was an apostle called by Christ so that his baptism, his calling, his being filled with the spirit. All of these marks of being brought into the church set him immediately about his work. You notice he didn't seek to do it on his own, but he did so through the church. And he did so equally, unafraid of his opponents, which, strange to say, were the very ones he was numbered among just a few days before. Now he was subject to the very threats he brought. But this could not dissuade him from his task. Immediately he was aware of what it would cost, the threats that he would face. Knowing full well the threats he faced since he authored them himself, he went on to face his very opponents, Formerly his friends, full of heavenly authority and power, he went straight to the Jews and confounded them with his words, though he must have known. And as we'll soon see, it placed his life in jeopardy and they have to sneak him out of the city. But the other thing we see that is amazing, and this speaks to the charity that the spirit produces in the church and. The way in which the church cannot help but recognize the authority of the Spirit in certain men, that the church here is beginning to embrace this unlikely preacher. Well, do you see him obeying the Lord, coming into the church, and then preaching, but also verse 22? But Saul increased all the more in strength. You see, he has. This amazing beginning and start to the Christian life, but he's growing stronger. That's what Luke is telling us. That's also how this process works. Conversion is wonderful. The entrance into the church is wonderful. The beginning of the ministry is wonderful, but these are still just the beginnings. And as the Christian goes on and as the Lord continues the work in the soul of man, what we see is that we as Christians are growing stronger all the time. Even as Saul did, that's what a Christian is. He's not just someone who's born again, but he's getting better all the time. This is the work of sanctification. It's a work that begins immediately. It is a work that is nurtured and cultivated, uh, not only in walking with the Lord in obedience, but also as we come into the church. If you think of it, what's the church? Well, the church is the place in which sanctification is most likely to occur. And apart from which, the Christian may expect very little growth in the Christian life. Well, here is Saul throwing himself into the church. And what do we find? No surprise. He's growing stronger. Look also at what he preached. Luke tells us this. He preached that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the Christ. As I said in the last sermon, the final point that Paul or Saul at this point Was a man who was absorbed with Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus was the prize. He also was the message that he preached. Jesus the son of God. Jesus the Christ. How quickly Jesus in speaking to the soul had convinced him of this. So he was called by Christ to bear his name to all men. To the Jews first. But also to the Greeks even to kings. We also see him saying, and I'll I'll just read this again, what he says in Acts chapter 26. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is just a fuller account of the same episode. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So you see, he was also uh, a man like uh, a Whitfield and so many others. He wasn't just preaching uh, the name of Jesus, but he was telling us what happens when a man believes in Jesus through faith in me. Jesus says those are the last words. What happens when a man has faith in Jesus? He's delivered. He's delivered from darkness into light. He now shares a place among those who have uh, the blessed inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. They are delivered from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. They receive the forgiveness of sins. All of these blessings become available. They are freely offered to the one who has faith. And that's what Paul preached. Salvation in the name of Jesus. And along those lines, a place In the church. How did he do so? What was his method? He opened the scriptures. This is something I keep stressing. These men were expositors. They opened their scriptures and they preached. What did he preach? He preached Christ. He preached Christ from all of scripture. He proved how these Old Testament scriptures pointed to Christ. And how he fulfilled all they said about him. And how it is that all who have faith in him. May be forgiven. And may have new life. Do we not here stand in wonder of God's grace along with our here with the hearers saying to ourselves in verse 21. Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest, The one who came persecuting Christians now is a Christian himself preaching the message of Christ, whereas FF Bruce says uh, very helpfully, I think. He says it was to the synagogues of Damascus that Saul had been sent with the commission from the high priest and to the synagogues of Damascus he went. But instead of presenting his letters of credence and demanding the extradition of the disciples of Jesus, he appeared as the bearer of a very different commission issued by a higher authority than the high priest. And as a disciple and messenger of Jesus, he announced his master's claims. Do you notice the difference? I said it earlier, I'll say it again. He came with the authority of the high priest in Jerusalem. Now he came with the authority of another and a greater high priest. And still the church is to preach the same message on the basis of the very same authority. Jesus is the same today as he was then. He still has a claim on guilty sinners. That's why we call lost sinners to come and be saved. Equally, he has a claim upon his church. And so it is that authority that not only calls all men to himself, but which commands the church to receive all who do into the church, the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And the real test of any man's claim to be a Christian or any church for that matter is simply this, whether his authority is recognized and obeyed. That's what a Christian is. That's what a church is. A church is a place where Jesus' rightful claims upon his disciples are recognized and obeyed. And let me just say this in closing. He has not ceased to speak to men. Still, he speaks from heaven. Oh, it is true. He uses weak instruments even as he did then. Men like Ananias or Saul or even one so weak as myself. But in speaking thus to us, my question to you, uh, we can imagine was the Lord's question to Ananias or to Saul or their question to others. He's speaking. But are we listening? Do we hear his voice? And are we willing to obey all that he has taught and commanded us? That is the test, beloved, of the church and of Christianity itself in every age. Amen. And let us return now our praise to God as uh, as we stand together and sing hymn 446.